Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, hello, and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope we're all keeping warm because it's cold in New Orleans, so I can just imagine how freaking cold it is in other cities that actually get cold. But we're here to warm your heart and your earbuds with our podcast. Now, before we get to the amazing performer that I was so honored to interview for this episode, I want to get to a giveaway. Episode 26, we talked with lesbian young adult fiction writer Tina Cacadellis. And at that time, she had finished two of the three books of her trilogy, the Carly Allen trilogy. We're happy to report, I guess. I don't know if this is a reporting situation. We're happy to announce to let you all know that this trilogy is complete. The third book, Burn After Reading, is done. It's about to be released. And Tina has hooked us up with two full sets of the trilogy to give away to y'all. So check out our Facebook page so that you can sign up for that giveaway. And maybe it'll be you. She's going to autograph them. She's going to put them in the mail to you. And you're going to get to see how hilarious and amazing Carly Allen is. I really enjoyed reading the first two books. I was excited about it. If you've heard the interview or if you do listen to it, you'll see I ask a lot of nuanced, very specific questions because I needed to know more about Carly Allen. They were so good. And I'm really looking forward to this third book. And you can too. You can get it for free. So check it out on our Facebook page, Near and Queer to My Heart, Instagram, Near and Queer to My Heart, and our Twitter, Queer to My Heart. You can sign up and maybe it'll be you. And now for the interview that we have today, I was so honored to interview this performer. If you're in New Orleans, if you're in the world, you've probably heard his name before, Vin Santos. He performs all over the world. He's a musician. He's a drag performer. He's a filmmaker. He does so many amazing things. He's an artist. He's a doll maker. I can't even, we don't even have time to get into all the amazing things he does. And talking to him was fun and funny and touching. And stay tuned after the interview because Vincentos was kind enough to share some of his music with us and we'd love to share it with you. So after the interview, check that out. I'm so excited to bring this interview to you. So let's welcome Vincentos DeFonte or just Vincentos, however you want to say it. Or just Vincentos. Or just Vincentos. Refer it's to more you special in... if you just have one name like Madonna or Cher. It makes you seem more important. So just Vincentos is good with me. And just to be clear, it's not Vincentos. A lot of people like to take it there because it sounds fancy, like like I'm a mu- magician from Europe or something. But <laughs> it's just a nickname that my best friend gave me years ago, and he's from a trailer park. So it's Vincentos. Oh, we're breaking down all the magic right now. Yep. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about because I, I did like try to look into some of your, you know, works before we talk because you do so many things. Like I know you and I before I met you, I knew you as the the grandmother of the New Orleans drag scene. And I always heard grandma, grandma, grandma. And I was like, who the fuck is this grandma? <laughs> then I met you and I was just like, you're not you're grandma. Like, she's 
grandmas. She's really young for yeah, a grandmother. She's one of those hot grandmas. I have children older than you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I heard of you as as grandma, and then I know you do the drag workshop, which we'll talk about. Sure. Um, I know you do music. Yes. I watched a short film that you did. I uh, used well, to be a filmmaker, and I uh, actually had my own film festival with Peaches Christ in San Francisco called the San Francisco Underground Short Film Festival, where we would showcase those short films that just couldn't get into a real festival, like the B-sides, the bad ones, the bad kids. Everything Um, I made in college. It it went really strong for many years, and I think it happens every now and then without me. So you might want to look that up. I'm going to check them on that. You do so many different things. And then I saw all these different, and I guess we'll get to them, of things that I don't know if they're they're true or not about you. Like some places were like, oh, you hail from San Francisco, and then one article said you came from the Barbary Coast, which – is a really big thing. Isn't that the same as San Francisco? The, is that? I think so. The Barbary Coast? I didn't write that. <laughs> that's why I was just like, these are two very different. I mean, maybe that's a nickname. I don't know because I'm not that cool. I used to call like the, that scene, like that West Coast oh. scene uh, back like in the days of like old school burlesque. Oh. But again, you can fact check any of this because most of the time I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, we don't fact check anything on here. (laughs) I'll let someone on the internet correct me. Isn't that how we fact check things? Actually, if you want to call in right now, um, you can win two tickets to our next show. What's our next show? I don't know. I just made that up. Isn't this a podcast? <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's not What's even live. What's the phone number? Uh, we're not giving that out. But yeah, so where are you from? Uh, I was born in San Francisco. I grew up all around the Bay Area, all the way up to a place called Placerville, which is up, sac- up past Sacramento, and then all the way up in Northern California up to Guerneville, which is past Santa Rosa, and then all the way to the South Bay, like San Jose, um, and a little bit in Santa Cruz. So you moved so around a lot as a I, kid? I was able to get out of the house and have my own wheels. I was I was going places. Where were you going? What were you doing? Uh, well, I was born in San Francisco. I got carted to San Jose at a young age where I spent my early years and even my high school years. But by the time I was 17, uh, my parents and I did not get along because I wore way too much makeup. And I left the house early and... Ended up moving to San Francisco like the minute I could find a place. What was it like? It's been gone for so long. But I do remember like lots of late night parties and lots of alternative spaces and warehouses. You know, the South of Market, like the leather scene was thriving. The music scene was was huge. And it was just easier for artists to live there. So it was just like a, you know, bohemian paradise. Kind of like I feel New Orleans is right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of people escape the bigger, more expensive cities to come here. And you can just see it in the arts and the culture. Like everybody's thriving and and pushing it and making stuff happen. Yeah, no, everyone's pushing boundaries. And that's one of the things, um, you know, I hope we get to with the drag workshop as to like who you accept in the drag workshop and how you kind of cultivate that. Cause I know there's a lot of different, like RuPaul, if for a very long time only wanted male born, male identified, sure. uh, performers on there. And I know New Orleans scene isn't about, uh, we, no, we, we and, don't put and, labels or. The scene or- that, that exposed me to drag was completely the opposite of anything drag race. It was all genders, all races, all ages, all performing for the sake of doing drag and for the love of doing drag. Um, so it's hard for me to to step outside of the way I was brought up and, you know, accept these more traditional kind of normal ideas of what drag is. 
Which what, is what started the workshop in the first place. It was me being bored. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> yep. You were bored and you were like, I'm going to start. Well, and now I we're moved, on. I moved to New Orleans and there was only two kinds of drag. There was pageants and there was the pop divas that do top 40 music and dress, you know, dress age appropriately, I guess you would say. And so there wasn't a place for me to work. Because at that time, I was this super weirdo kind of like drag clown monster androgynous creature. So there were just no drag gigs for me. So I almost immediately went to work in burlesque and and vaudeville and cabaret instead. Um, And that's really where, you know, I think I got some really great life experience. Um, And that's why I think now I feel like a more full, fully rounded performer as far as like I'm comfortable on the mic and I'm you know, just comfortable by myself on stage, period. I hosted a burlesque show on Bourbon Street for close to two years. And, you know, that's the biggest training you could ever get anywhere. There's no college for that. I know a few stand-ups that do a uh, performance there, and they get so good at handling audiences. You and do, they're- you really, when, you're, when you have an audience every night that it's people from all over the world and all walks of life, and you have to suck them all in within minutes and hold their attention for an hour, you get really good at reading people and also getting just to know people. For sure. So what originally got you to start performing drag? Like, what was your first performance? Do you remember it? Uh, I do remember it very well. I mean, the first time I can remember being in full drag, I was maybe 10. Uh, My cousins put me in drag. My cousins were like in the disco scene back in the 70s. Um, I won't say exactly what year this was. (laughs) but uh, You don't have to. But, you know, I was was feeling the fantasy. I had a photo shoot out of the pool on the the diving board. I can share those pictures if anybody's interested in seeing them. Oh, yeah, pretty absolutely. Uh, and then at a very young age, I was into bands like Kiss and like all the, the kind of like glam rock scene. And so I was already painting my face and lip syncing in front of the mirror with my best friend and our, you know, tennis racket guitars. <laughs> um, and then going into high school, I got into music and getting into bands. And even then I was, I guess uh, what we called it back then was death rock. So if you don't know what that is, that was like a pre cursor to what most people would think of as goth and so you know all through high school i was in full face makeup and you know wearing women's clothing and it was more like of a more of a punk rock thing than it was a drag thing but in hindsight like i've been doing drag for a lot longer than i'm willing to admit um moved to san francisco was in several bands even in the bands they were all very theatrical and i would often be in drag and then somebody asked me one night do you want to come to a tranny shack with me and i was like what's that and they're like it's a drag club and i said well you know what i don't really think i'm into that i don't really care for drag never having even been to a drag show i just figured it was like some old queen with a giant wig you know lip-syncing dolly parton as a musician i maybe i felt that i was above that and she said well there's gonna be tons of cute boys and i was single at the time and i said let's go right now yeah let's go early you should have led with that um and we went and tranny shack was a club that was every tuesday night at midnight for 12 years so it was like people considered it their church they never missed a night and every night had a different theme and and when I went for the first time, there was like a rock and roll theme. And the very first performer that stepped onto the stage was this woman uh, named Putanesca. And she was all leather clad in spikes. And she was lip syncing to ACDC, and, which, you know, spoke to my soul. And I, not even like halfway through the number, I remember thinking very clearly that I could totally do that. And within a matter of weeks, I was performing in other people's numbers and within about a month i was 
debuting my first solo number. What was your first solo? Uh, my first solo number was a song from Wendy Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics. If you're not familiar with her, look her up. She was a late 70s, early 80s kind of punk pop icon, and she was known for destroying things on stage. She would literally bring cars on stage and blow them up. But she was quite well known for this one act that she, where she would stack televisions in a pyramid, and they would all have different images going on them, and then she would smash them to pieces with a sledgehammer, and that's what I did. I impersonated her, brought about eight televisions, and then busted them to bits at the end of the number, and cut myself horribly on several of the shards, but I got that audience reaction that I never imagined ever getting and from then it was just like i was hooked and i never went back that's the, like the adrenaline rush that I, like people ask me and i'm like i can't explain it you really cannot nope you have to take the workshop or apparently to, <laughs> to get that <laughs> so you're just san francisco to new orleans or did you go anywhere else in between i traveled all over the bay area and migrated here and there just depending on work and family stuff the last place we lived uh my husband gregory and i was in guerneville california and if you're listening if you're in guerneville i've sworn to myself and to the universe that i will never set foot in that town again <laughs> and now it's recorded so <laughs> if you see even so i'll probably be there in a couple weeks <laughs> yeah because <laughs> now they're gonna never pay you money <laughs> i also said that i had visited new orleans once for a wild weekend for gregory's birthday um which was a total disaster and I remember very clearly on the plane ride out, I was looking down at New Orleans and I said, I'll never set foot in that fucking town again. And here you are. And here I am, <laughs> running the scene. What uh, what was so terrible about that weekend? I think at that point, most of the country had been pretty homogenized and New Orleans is known for being kind of lawless and reckless. And so we just took full advantage of all those liberties. Um, I will say that he, Gregory may or may not have disappeared for exactly 24 hours oh shit so i just by the time i hit that plane i was over it and this is after we tried to change our flight several times because we felt so disgustingly horribly hung over we couldn't afford it so we sucked it up and got on that plane i, have... I met a really nice christian lady that day um <laughs> as i was drinking tequila shots on the plane and she taught me about the the wonders of the christian faith and how i could really like turn my life around how Thanks, that, lady, wherever you are. <laughs> I said, how, how'd that turn out? <laughs> I think I have her email somewhere. I should check in with her. Yeah, I used to say I have resting Jehovah's Witness talk to me face because no matter where I am, <laughs> I was at a Pep Boys and some lady was talking to me and then she slipped me one of their pamphlets. Like, that's yeah. what they do. I don't know if you've ever been a Well, that's the thing. This woman and I had like the best conversation and then she slips me an email a couple days later trying to bring me into her church. And I was like, bitch, I thought we were friends. <laughs> like, I thought you knew me. I thought, I thought, thought you cared we were about cool. Me. You really care about Jesus. Yeah, I know. This lady, I'm sorry about your car. And then it's like, you know, maybe that wouldn't happen if like this. And I'm yeah, like, uh. If you would just pray more. So you ever going to leave New Orleans? Are you here for life? Is that you up know, in the air? It, things are going so well for me here. And, you know, it is an affordable place to live. I always make jokes that, like, if my rent ever goes up to market value, I'm out of here. Because then, you know, you can move anywhere. You can live anywhere else. And having moved to New Orleans after living and basically living in the Bay Area my entire adult life, I just saw how moving and restarting and reinventing yourself is a possibility. And so I'm thinking, like, what's next? You know, I could go anywhere and take this idea of the workshop and take my visual art and take my performance art and 
and make a living. How do you, um, you know, cause I know, um, like my girlfriend was in cycle eight yes. for the workshop. And I know at that point you were saying that that might be the last one. Yeah. And I, I've said that every, at the end of every cycle, <laughs> uh, just so the listeners know that we do this drag workshop a couple times a year and we do a couple cycles a year. Over five years, we've done eight full cycles and now we're going into the ninth. It's a 10 week program. It's like a boot camp for drag. It's not just hair and makeup. It's, it's politics, ethics, production and, and a lot of makeup and a lot of hair <laughs> and a lot of rehearsals. And then you graduate live in front of a sold out crowd and it's the best night of your life. And then from there, every gig is just like slightly less as less, but like it's <laughs> just slightly less as exciting as that first one that you did. Well, for cycle eight, they had two graduations back to back. Two sold out graduations. Yeah. We're going to try and go to go for three this cycle. Oh yeah. They're just going to start them at 4 PM and just we're starting at noon. <laughs> <laughs> just you're, you're here all night. It's I a, just, I thought that was so amazing for them to do that. Like two back to back, their very first for a lot of them, their well, first yeah, performance incredible ever. To see most of them come out and do their first drag number ever on stage. But then it was also super fascinating to watch them come back for the second show and try and like one up their previous performance and which most of them did. Yeah, no, the second show is like they all like the nerves that they had. You could tell a lot of them had this. They were like like already famous at that point. (laughs) Yeah, they're already they're already taking gigs. Oh yeah, I know there was there was people recruiting there. That's what was cool too. Like sure, sure, we get a lot of producers from other shows that want to come and see the new talent and pick out the their girls or guys or their whatevers uh, ahead of time and you know stake their claim on all this talent. Yeah, and you were in Paris recently? Yes. What were you? I don't know why you were, I just know you were there cuz your pictures were fabulous, but I was um, just like we how were, the hell did we Santos get We were asked to do a drag show of all things, and we presented this show as myself and five of my favorite performers in the country, three from New Orleans, two from San Francisco, and we went and presented our version of what an American drag show is like for us, which is not really typical of what most drag shows are like. You know, there is live music, there are theatrical moments outside of the lip sync, there is comedy, there is spoken word. And so I think we really gave them a really good hard slice of what we're all about. And I don't speak French, but I'm pretty sure they loved it. We did this in a beautiful performing arts center called the Mona Bismarck Center for American Arts. You can look her up. She was a a very wealthy socialite. And considered the best dressed woman in the world by Coco Chanel. And when she passed away, she left one of her mansions, uh, which is right across the street from the Eiffel Tower. And she left it to create the center where people would bring art from America and present it to the French. Okay, that's amazing. So it was a really huge honor for us. And it's all part of this documentary that is being made about my career as an artist and mostly as a drag artist and me trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) What do you want to be? I think through the course of making this film, I've realized that I'm never going to know the answer to that. Hopefully retired at some point. <laughs> That's just my dream is just retired. I would just, if I could retire today, I would just throw this microphone on the ground and head to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I want, one of the things I always ask performers is like, where do you see yourself? You know, and especially like with stand up, I feel like there's certain, like, there's a couple paths there's you can kind of, right? yeah, like you can get your Netflix special, your HBO special, sure, you sure, can sure. get your tour, you can write for a, you know, a show that's on television, you can write movies, you can act, yeah. like that's kind of your, your paths. But with drag, I feel like, especially like when you're in Paris and I know you're going on tour, like you, there's so many different ways of expressing that. You can do live performance, you can record, you know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I guess you, I would call myself a multidisciplinary artist because I work in so many disciplines and often mix them together most of the time. So there isn't really a clear path. And also just my, I guess what you would call my brand, isn't that easy for just anyone to wrap their head around. You know, I have to work really hard to win my audience over because they often don't know what to make of me at first. But I think once they see that I'm not afraid to let my guard down and be a human being with them, no matter what the visual is when I first come out or what, you know, how horribly depressing my music is, you know, it's really like the, the, the human interaction is what interests me the most about being a performer and being on stage. Uh, there's, there's very, there's no, you know, there's no veil there. I like to get really, really intimate with my audience. Yeah, I know. I've seen you. One of the articles I read, it asked like what your go-to song was. And you, I don't know if you remember this. It was Whitney Houston. I think it was How Will I Know? Uh-huh. And then, but you said then the, the Sam Smith version sure, sure. of the song. Because at first I was like, Whitney Houston, I was like, that's an upbeat song. I couldn't, I was yeah. trying to picture you doing that. Yeah, no, you, like with the, like, eight, like the late eighties, early nineties beat. And yeah. I was like, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not seeing this in my head. And then I kept, and it was like Sam Smith version. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know yes, that. It's actually Sam Smith's <laughs> version um, that I took and pitched up just to hair so it sounds like an actual woman and it's my top grossing uh, lip sync to date because it's all about me getting tips and it started out as what was supposed to be a very emotional piece and this is when I was working on Bourbon Street and my goal was to like make somebody in the audience cry or you know or at least get like mildly upset or you know highly emotional and then I saw like a dollar bill on the stage and everything changed and that that whole performance became became about how will I know if you really love me because if you do really love me, you're going to tip me. Show me the money. Show me the money. And I won't say that at least one drag queen that I know of has stolen that number. Oh, shit. Because <laughs> they saw how lucrative it was. It's like, how can you not? For those of you out there listening, I will find you copyright, trademark, <laughs> LLC, all of it. Pretend you never even heard about it. He's got lo- <laughs> lawyers and lawyers and lawyers. We'll just so many lawyers. Right <laughs> so now many lawyers coming after me. <laughs> Yeah. Smith's lawyers, Whitney Houston's lawyers. <laughs> yeah, now that we've put all that out there, it's like, oh, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. I've set you up now. I, you know, what do you do when people steal? Have uh, people stolen your shit? Is that a common thing? Because in stand-up, we kind of, there's original thought where there's like, hey, we all had this kind of same idea. Sure. And then there's I mean, straight the, up you know, There's the concept thievery. that everything has been done before. And, you know, especially in the world of lip syncing, like you're taking someone else's material and recreating it into a theatrical experience. So every everybody's biting off of everybody. But even in the workshop, I you know, if you live in a town like New Orleans, it's you know, has a fairly low population compared to somewhere like New York City or San Francisco mm-hmm. or Seattle. Um, you know, there are we all develop these signature songs that become kind of our our thing. And and to, I don't know. So we so we do claim these songs for ourselves. There I do maybe three lip syncs right now. It, that's my entire category catalog of lip syncs that i do i've settled on my three favorite ones and they all have like original mixes or something original applied to them 
And so I think it would be in bad taste for somebody to take my original ideas and then recreate them for themselves. But at the same time, like, you can't really claim a Britney Spears song, you know? And, which, you know, a big thing in the workshop is we try to get people to dig deeper than just going to the immediate top 40 or whatever the hottest song is right now. Or we also like to avoid songs that people like. And when I say people, I mean the workshop members, because a lot of times they come to me with presenting their song ideas and they're like, oh my God, back in high school, this when I broke up with my last girlfriend, this song got me through a lot. And I'm like, the audience does not fucking care. This isn't <laughs> yeah. about you. It's about it's about entertaining, you know, and it's about giving the audience what they came for. And so, you know, that's that's like my religious belief when it comes to performing, that it's a, it's a selfless act. And if you give your audience everything that you have inside of you, they're going to give you the same in return. And that sounded kind of gross, mm -hmm. just saying it out loud. No, it's true. But, I don't know. Close your eyes. <laughs> it's true. Imagine and, the possibilities. Well, because if you're holding back, people can feel it. I think so, too. And then that makes them hold back because they're like, what are they hiding? Huh? Well, and also like trying to come off as too cool or too pretty, you know, the audience doesn't really respond well to attitude unless there's at least, you know, a, a slight sense of humor that goes along with it. Do you think a scene can have too many people in the scene? Like, are there, are there too many queens right now? Or is there too much, there's too, too much, many shows? It, there's too, too much? much drag, period. Okay. Um, but I can't complain. You know, at first when drag got on television and it really started to explode and you saw how this, the pay scales were tipped between actual real life performers that I know and then these queens that were on TV for a few hours, I was honestly like a little bitter at first. And then over the years, all I've seen is just more and more opportunities Based on the popularity of drag, there is a, a gig for everyone out there. I mean, people want a drag queen at everything. It doesn't matter. People, like, they're reading books to children in libraries. You know, they're about mitzvahs <laughs> and they are at weddings and they are at funerals. And, you know, it's become a whole industry. And, you know, I've definitely benefited from that. You know, and I don't know if the drag workshop would have even been a possibility hadn't drag reached this kind of like this level of popularity that it has now. Yeah, because I, I feel like there just needs to be a balance. Like with stand-up, I feel like our scene, it grows so much that it reaches a certain point that sure. we can't handle it. And then like well, we'll start to shrink again. Honestly, is there too much drag? Probably. Is there too much bad drag? Definitely. <laughs> Same with stand. -up. I mean, stand up. Well, not we do names. No, and we do mics, so like you can have an open mic for stand up and, and go. And there isn't really that with drag. So I feel like every show's kind of an open mic till you really worked out your performance. Like how, like when you have a new performance, mm -hmm. what, like how do you know it's ready to go? Like what are your, what are your steps? Oh gosh, I mean, I've done thousands and thousands of them, so. I don't even know if I have much of a process. Usually I'm sitting there painting my face in my studio, looking in the mirror and saying, this is fucking stupid. This life you chose is ridiculous. And then I drag my feet to the club, kicking and screaming and complaining. And then I get out on the stage and it's a blur. And then five minutes later, I walk off the stage like thinking that was completely worth it. What do you what are you thinking? This is your life. <laughs> it's like you chose it. You could have done anything else in the evening. And this is, you know, how you choose, sure. how we choose to, to do it. Cause we have this need to perform. I do. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, crave the attention. 
But again, I also loved uh, ex- that emotional exchange with the audience. And you also are an artist. I am a doll maker. Doll yes. maker. Mm-hmm. And how did you get started in, in that? And you have a gallery. And- yeah, that was all completely by accident. I'm, my original plan when I moved to New Orleans was to open a cabaret in the French Quarter. And when I got here, I realized really quickly that that wasn't an option. There just aren't really any venues. Um, and the, you know, the, getting the permits and, and doing what it takes to actually make that a reality would take millions of dollars. Um, and probably some attorneys. And I don't have those things. So again, I went to, you know, work outside of the French Quarter and burlesque and, and vaudeville. And at the, at the same time, I was working out at the French market, selling some little tchotchkes. Gregory and I had an import business. And I was looking around and there were people out there making stuff and making a living. And I was like, I can make stuff. And so I was a mosaic artist at the time. I started making these little mosaic plaques. I got really bored with that because that's what I'd been doing for years in San Francisco. And I wanted to switch it up. So I started making little characters out of my leftover glass. And then I would start to find things on the ground that were shiny and pretty or weird. And I would incorporate those into the characters as their accessories. And then the characters just kept growing and developing until one evening I went to a group show of women doll makers here in New Orleans that used to happen every year and just saw like the possibilities of the world of doll making and was entranced by it. And at that point, my characters were almost like dolls, but like glued to a, you know, a surface. And so I met this woman, Sherry DeBeau, who's like definitely my favorite U.S. doll maker, probably most accomplished doll maker. And she was so kind and so sweet. I went and studied with her in California for a long weekend and she taught me how to sculpt with clay. And then I took all of those things, the mosaic, the assemblage, the clay, carpentry, and rolled it all into one thing, and now I make these really, I guess, pretty draggy art dolls that are sculpted out of clay and then adorned with vintage and antique stuff that I collect. Oh, they're beautiful, and your gallery is beautiful. Thank you. How did you open a gallery? Like, how did you go uh, from... You know, honestly, it just kind of fell into my lap. I was working the market scenes here in New Orleans. I went from the French market, where people go to buy their little souvenirs, little tchotchkes for, you know, a few dollars here and there. And So eventually I kind of... Once my art started developing and I priced myself out of there, I went to all the other festivals and markets in town and was discovered basically by a gallery owner on Royal Street. And I spent about three years in there producing work for him. And then eventually he was looking for a way out of the business and the timing was right. And I always wanted that particular place. And I was already very married to it, having been in there for for those years. So we worked out a deal for it to become mine. And now I have to pay all the bills. <laughs> it's part of the deal. <laughs> but I also got the opportunity to move my whole studio and my drag studio out of my house, which is probably the best thing I've ever done. Um, luckily, it's only three blocks away from my house. So I have access to it all the time. But, you know, now I have like a, a, a place where I can have some solitude. I have my piano there. I have all my drag there. I have all my doll making supplies. And I won't say that I'd never have slept there. <laughs> what are some of the band names you have had? Oh, I love band names. Um, my first one was was Morning Becomes Electra. And that was maybe when I was 16, 17. That was a five-piece band. I was the vocalist and keyboardist for that. And we were very, like, very, like, kind of New Order sounding. 
like early New Order. I was in a band called Locust, which I know there's maybe two or three bands like that, but this was like a kind of like dirty sludge metal band in my early 20s. And then probably the longest project that I've been involved in is a band, my one of my best friends and sisters, Elisa, and that was called Agnes. Um, and Agnes was actually named after her mother's twin who, who died uh, almost in- instantaneously after she was born. And we were like a kind of psychedelic goth experimental rock band. Oh, those aren't too bad. Usually if people dig out either like improv group names or mm-hmm. uh, band names. There was and, a bunch of yeah. other horrible ones in there. <laughs> okay. You left those out. Um, and then, you know, actually what, uh, doing drag and, and being on stage by myself is what gave me the confidence to go solo as a musician. So from there, I just started writing my own material. And I'll often just play by myself like I'm going to be doing on this upcoming tour. Or if, you know, I know tons of great musicians. And so if I need to, I can put a backing band together and take that route as well. So you're, are you touring with music or drag or you have an upcoming tour? Uh, I do. Um, as a young death rocker, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite bands was Bauhaus. If you don't know them, look them up. I actually uh, know who that is. You have to be like of a certain age probably to know it, or at least have had cool, really cool parents. And I've been working with David J., the bass player, for years. He produced my record some years back in San Francisco, and we've stayed in touch and done projects ever since. And recently we were in Paris, and they were in Paris at the same time, and we all hung out after our shows. And then when I got home, I was invited to go on tour with them for a couple of weeks because they're going to be playing here in New Orleans, and they're going to take me from here on a bus from New Orleans all the way down to Miami and then up east coast to Baltimore, Philly, and ending in New York City. Well, that sounds and fun. And that'll just be playing solo, dragging a piano with me, and then leaving it in New York because it's not worth shipping it back. <laughs> have you ever done a tour like that before? I actually have not done a, a really organized tour like that. It's going to be very eye-opening. It's going to be terrifying. I like a really controlled room. Any of my shows that you've been to, you know, like they're mostly, if not all, completely seated. I don't allow cell phones at our sh- at our productions that we do because so we want to keep the experience really intimate. And on this tour, I'm going to be playing huge nightclubs for thousands of people that are standing there. And so it's a totally different monster. I'm shitting my pants scared, but also excited about how scared I am to do it. And you know, again, I've worked on Bourbon Street for a couple of years with an audience of about, you know, 50 to 100 people every night. And now I'm going to be moving to two to 3,000 every night. And I'm going to learn really quickly whether I have or do not have the witchcraft that I think I do have inside <laughs> of me. And if I can, you know, suck these people in and, and create that kind of intimacy with a completely different kind of element. So wish me luck. Good luck. I mean, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. And I feel like I'm so confident in the stuff that I've already done. You know, I can get up an MC at the drop of a hat or drop a lip sync or get up and play a song at a drag show or a burlesque show. But I've never done anything like this. So again, it feels really good to be scared. I like that feeling. Mm-hmm. When did you first start MC? I didn't know it was possible. Oh. I thought I was dead inside. <laughs> it's giving you new life. <laughs> I live. Yeah. When <laughs> Sorry, did you, I take that. Oh, back. yeah, no, no, no. No, you can 
we're free to say whatever. I'll edit it together so it's going to sound real smooth the no, whole no, time. You can leave it in. Just, you know, just throwing out the drag. We haven't staples. cursed too much yet, so no. that's pretty good. I know we, we were talking earlier about, well, can we curse? I was like, yeah, we fucking can. And then we I haven't actually, really done it. I actually curse more when I'm just talking to myself. You know, when I can't find my keys, I mean, it gets foul. <laughs> Yeah, I start threatening. And a I lot mix of all the curse words like back to back where they don't even make sense. It's like speaking in tongues. And so, like, you all don't need to hear that. No, or do they? <laughs> when did you start MC? Because you started performing drag, but where you weren't talking. Because I know talking on a mic is a whole different it is. vehicle. Um, and as a, as a solo like musician, it, I was already kind of working in the, in the cabaret element where I would, you know, play a song at the piano, but I usually attach a story to it. And then, just kind of improvise the rest. And again, I like to connect and, and be close to my audience. So I would just talk to them. Uh, but getting this gig on Bourbon Street, can remember, I can remember back then thinking how terrifying that was when I first started. And then I just started to create these little dialogues and little formulas and like kind of a, you know, a set list of material that could easily be thrown out if, you know, if the improv is stronger. But I would always give myself kind of a framework to, to work off of. And then just, you know, you never know who's going to be in the audience. You never know what kind of, you know, interaction you're going to have. You never know if you're going to have a heckler or an admirer or if that girl's going to get up on stage and lift you onto her shoulders, you know, 13 feet in the air on top of this really flimsy stage. And you'll see her life flash before your eyes. You know, it's just, it's really unpredictable, especially in a scene like that here in the French Quarter. What's your, what's the worst heckle you've ever gotten? Not just on bourbon, anywhere. Uh, several years ago, opened for this band called the Tiger Lilies. And this was in San Francisco at the Great American Music Hall. It's a really beautiful setting. And it was kind of one of those dream come true gigs for me. And afterwards I was selling merch and this Kind of drunk, kind of feisty, old-timer guy, because I was young back then. So this is probably like me now. Mm -hmm. Came up to my table and was just like, that was fucking terrible. You ruined the show. Mm. And I was, then my guitar player was there, and I was was like, do you want to kick his ass? (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, then I sold another CD, and so I just totally forgot about him. But I do remember, like, what he looked like and what he sounded like. And he just, like, really directly had to tell me how he felt. Yeah, I've never, I've had people suggest to me, like, oh, yeah. your joke would be better. I mean, better. I've been to a lot of shows that I didn't like. I've never gone up to somebody after no. the show to tell them, to go out of my way to tell them how much they suck. No, I've never. I've been offended at shows that I've never <laughs> what, said that. What advantage is that to to, to you? You know, is he I couldn't resist himself. He just couldn't. He hated it that much. And you know what? Good for him because at least I I made him feel something. Yeah, he obviously felt very strongly. Mm-hmm. How did you meet Mr. Gregory? Your husband? Are you guys oh, married? God. Yeah, Are you we, all married. We, like we, married, married. We got married at the DMV in New York, and it was a total disaster but also really cute at the same time. This is before it was legal, okay? So it was a little punk. And at was, the DMV, like where you go to You know, you your... go and you take a number and then <laughs> you wait your turn and fill out some forms and then they take you in a room with like a dirty couch and horrible carpets and you say some kind of vows. We didn't say vows, but there was a, a I don't think it was even a minister. I think she just, some lady that worked for the city. Yeah. And... Gregory had a horrible cold at the time, and so he was, like, super high on cold medicine. Um, I was completely hungover. We were with our son and his roommate, who were both just, like, totally stoned. 
And so it was like four zombies and this poor woman in this room. And <laughs> I remember when it came time to, you know, do you take this man line came in. I remember Gregory looking up at me and I could just tell by the way his eyes were glazed over that he had no idea where he was. <laughs> and then, like, we took horrible, then, we, you know, then we took horrible pictures in With front like of like beige. a backdrop of City Hall. <laughs> and then, you know, it started out as this idea of how to like, kind of mesh all of our businesses together as far as taxes are concerned. But it ended up being quite romantic. And a year after the actual ceremony, we just had everybody come to New Orleans and had a huge party with the all the family and friends from around the country and around the world. Um, but we've been together for 20 years now. And we literally met on the street one night. He was leaving the bar that we hung out at, and I was coming to the bar on my motorcycle. Oh, yeah. He must have been looking cute. And I saw him, and I was like, I want that one. Like, I knew, like, instantly, like, my brain was just like, that's the one I want. And it wasn't even like, that's the one I want for tonight. Like, that's that's my new boyfriend. So I went up and tried to, like, put the charm on. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm leaving. And I was like, oh you sure you want to do that? And he's like, well, I have to. And he like motions next to him. And I look over and he's holding hands with this other really cute guy as they're waiting for a taxi. And I was just like, all right, then see ya. <laughs> and then, you know, this particular bar we both frequented. Um, and I just waited a couple weeks and then I ran into him again and we went home together, and the rest is history. Literally history, 20 years of history. That's pretty amazing. Do you have any tips out there for people? Yeah, don't try to control your partner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could share your feelings or whatever, but you're not there to change them. You know, accept them for who they are. Definitely learn how to compromise. I know so many people that are terminally single because they refuse to compromise, and that's not what a relationship is built on. It's built on compromise. So, you know, suck it up. If you want to, if you want the good, you have to take the bad with it. Yeah. Cause you guys, every time I see, I mean, you guys are totally adorable, but also Thanks. you seem like you guys are both doing the shit you want to do in life. Like we, everything. We support each other a hundred percent on all the projects that we want to do. And there couldn't be enough projects in a day to, to satisfy either one of us. Um, so we've always just kind of practiced saying yes to each other and, you know, at least, at least to trying things to see if they stick. We've done, a, we've tried so many different things at this point, you know, that we've left behind. But right now, we're, but we both have like three major careers rolling. I mean, you yeah, guys keep I, busy. I mean, my biggest fear is boredom. You ever bored? I, I like to tell myself mm -hmm. that, and then I look at my to do list and. And I just get over it. Now, uh, Miss Pageant Pageant, is that a show that you created? Or? Yes. Okay. Um, and so. Because you don't, you said something about pageant queens earlier, but now we have Miss. Yeah. You know, and actually when I moved here, I, I had very little knowledge of, of traditional drag pageants. And so I was kind of fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the look, you know, and the polish and the, and the choices and just the whole scene and, and the drama. But again, there were just, there wasn't a room for me in there and it wasn't a path that I wanted to go down. And so after a couple years of doing the workshop, we decided because basically here's the truth. A lot of the pageant queens were coming for me and coming for the workshop, you know, because people weren't as polished as they liked to see, or they didn't like anything alternative, or they didn't like women doing drag. And so I was getting a lot of heat from, you know, the more traditional drag pageant community. And so we said, you know what? Fuck you. We're going to do our own pageant. Um, 
<laughs> back in back, uh, Tranny Shack used to have a pageant every year, and I won that particular pageant in the year two thousand. Um, if you want to break out your calculators, <laughs> and the, you know, and that particular pageant was more of a performance art based thing. It wasn't, which is just very much like our own pageant, the Miss Pageant pageant. We don't care if the earrings match the shoes. We want to see who's going to be the most creative and the most cutting edge. And come in and like break the house down in half with their, with their performance chops. And so I think it started out the first year as kind of a, a parody almost of the traditional pageant and kind of bucking those traditions. But it became very quickly like a very serious competition and people go all out. So the last three pageants have seen sold out crowds and I'm pretty comfortable in saying because I've been to other pageants. That we have the largest drag pageant in the South. In the South, wow! I mean, you had Raja as a judge. Like it was, Raja, I was there. It was Raja sold Jean out. Herman, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was funny. They were, oh, they were hilarious. Yeah. I mean, what more fun <laughs> is it to be a drag queen reading other drag queens? No, that's that. <laughs> I mean, and the performances were amazing. And you have Miss Congealed. <laughs> yes, Miss Congealed is our solution to Miss Congeniality, <laughs> and. The Which person the that best. wins the pageant is the one that gets the biggest reaction from the audience. You know, while we sit there and judge and, and offer our critiques, it's really the audience who picks the winner. And Miss Congealed, which is actually won by a woman the last two years now running, is the person that just really goes out on the limb and creates something that nobody ever could have even dreamed up. Just like the weirdest, most wild and take, you know, the one that took like the biggest risk of getting out there and being original. Squirt, definitely. Squirt Reynolds. Squirt Reynolds. Won it and Napoleon definitely Complex. killed it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's hilarious Annabelle too. Spectre was our first Miss Congealed because she came out and did a stand-up routine of all things, oh, sure. you know, which we know takes balls, you know, and she did it well. And so while she didn't, break the house in half like Neon Burgundy did. She definitely was deserving of a title. What do you say, and you know, we're winding down, I guess we'll try to end it on this. What do you say out there to your haters? Oh, bitch, I got a plane to catch. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you'd be ready. I've just really, I've just, you know, I'm not a young woman anymore and I really don't have time for the pain. And every once in a while, someone will get under my skin, maybe online or something. And I will, you know, kind of lose face and just get sucked into it. Typically, it's if somebody's coming after me personally, it just rolls right off because I honestly do not have the time to give it. But when somebody's on the attack over one of my children from the drag workshop or one of my family members or friends, then it gets real Italian real fast. You will find a horse's head. <laughs> nice Godfather quote. Mm. Well, thank you drag so much. Mafia. Thank you so much for, for doing you. this interview. This really fun. Yeah, I hope you had a good time. And If people want to look me up, they can look me up under Vinsantos. They can look me up under Vinsantos DeFonte. And you can also find me and my art at uh, funeralgallery.com. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right.
gonna get older We'll shed some light on little things To find Oversights The wrinkles and culture Thank you to Vince Santos for sharing his world with us. Thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. You can check out the live Greetings from Queer Mountain storytelling show in New Orleans, Austin, New York City, and Oakland. Check out all our social media for more information. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Near and Queer to My Heart, on Twitter at Queer to My Heart. If you like us, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Email us, nearandqueertomyheart at gmail.com. Looking forward to talking to y'all. Have a good day. Goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 